we have a lot to get to. Today, right-wing conspiracy monger Alex Jones was ordered to pay nearly a billion dollars in damages for the extraordinary, vicious lies he spread about the Sandy Hook massacre. In just a few minutes, we'll be joined by the lawyer who won that case for the Sandy Hook families. We'll also be talking with the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate from North Carolina. Her race is super close, and it's one of a handful of contests that could determine Senate control. National Democrats understand that, and they are making a huge last-minute investment in her candidacy. Sherry Beasley will join us live a little later on in the show. But first, we have breaking news tonight and Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago document scandal. In August, when the FBI executed a search warrant at Trump's Beach Club, they found over 100 classified documents and 11,000 other government documents stashed all over the place in various parts of the property. When Justice Department officials had visited Mar-a-Lago a couple months before, a Trump lawyer told them that all the documents Trump had carted down from the White House were kept in a basement storage room. And that that was bad enough, given that the storage room was beneath a public area of Mar-a-Lago and the sensitive documents were protected by nothing but a locked closet door. But when the FBI searched the club later in the summer, they found several batches of documents in Trump's personal office, including three classified documents stuffed in Trump's desk. Now, when that news broke, outside legal analysts thought it was meaningful that documents had been found in Trump's private quarters because It suggested that he, Donald Trump, might have somehow been involved in the placement, the squirreling away of those documents around Mar-a-Lago, or that Trump had, at the very least, known that those documents were not where they were supposed to be, which was, of course, in the hands of the National Archives. To that end, it soon emerged in the Justice Department's court filings that the reason the department had felt the need to take the unprecedented step of searching a former president's home was because the DOJ believed the documents were being hidden and moved after they had subpoenaed Trump to hand them over. They believed this in part because the department had also subpoenaed surveillance camera footage from Mar-a-Lago. And on that footage, they saw boxes being moved in and out of the storage room where these sensitive documents were ostensibly kept. But the question always remained, why were they being moved? And specifically, Who was directing this movement, this squirreling away of these documents after the Justice Department literally subpoenaed them? Well, tonight we have brand new reporting from The Washington Post. Quote, a Trump employee has told federal agents about moving boxes of documents at Mar-a-Lago at the specific direction of the former president. Agents have gathered witness accounts indicating that after Trump advisors received a subpoena in May for any classified documents that remained at Mar-a-Lago, Trump told people to move boxes to his residence at the property. That description of events was corroborated by the security camera footage, which showed people moving the boxes. The employee who is working at Mar-a-Lago is cooperating with the Justice Department and has been interviewed by multiple times by federal agents. In the first interview, the witness denied handling sensitive documents or the boxes that might contain such documents. As they gathered evidence, though, agents decided to re-interview the witness, and the witness's story changed dramatically. In the second interview, the witness described moving boxes at Trump's request. The witness is now considered a key part of the Mar-a-Lago investigation, offering details about the former president's alleged actions and instructions to subordinates that could have been an attempt to thwart federal officials' demands for the return of classified and government documents. I can tell you that a source familiar with the matter tells NBC News tonight that the Washington Post reporting is accurate. So the former president of the United States 
appears to have defied a court-ordered subpoena for personal records, including classified information, and ordered his staff to hide those documents from law enforcement officials. Boy, when you put it that way, it sure sounds an awful lot like potential obstruction of justice. But I am not a lawyer. Fortunately, my first guest tonight is. Joining us now is Barry Burke. He served as a chief impeachment counsel to the House of Representatives for the January 6th impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Barry, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Alex. So how incriminating is this for Trump? I mean, is this effectively the smoking gun in terms of obstruction charges? This new reported evidence is a game changer. It is as powerful a case of obstruction of justice as you could imagine. Right? You have a subpoena calling for these classified documents. Couldn't have been clearer. Then you have videotape of those documents being moved to the former president's personal residence. And now you have a witness seen on that videotape who says he, of course, did that at the at the behest of Donald Trump. When you add to that the representations made that all the documents were produced, what makes this so significant? It is not only such a clear case of obstruction of justice, but it puts Donald Trump at the center of it. And, and I will tell you, obstruction cases are so strong because they not only support bringing that charge, but they buttress and actually make it easier to bring, in this case, a violation of the Espionage yes, Act. Yes, tell me how those two work in tandem, the Espionage Act and the, es- the, the obstruction case here. Absolutely. The Espionage Act requires taking documents that you're not entitled to that go to our national defense, classified type documents, and keeping them and hiding them or giving them to others. So the fact that he is now hiding the documents, people hide things because they're showing consciousness of guilt. Right. But also, to the extent he's hiding classified documents, that in and of itself could be a violation of the Espionage Act in addition to obstruction of justice. So if you're the department and you're thinking, should we bring this case? We're like, wait a second. We have him dead to rights on obstruction of justice. These reports are true. And that helps us prove our Espionage Act violation Espionage case. Act, yeah. Exactly. The Espionage Act. And when you add to that his public statements, that they're his documents, you have a very powerful case that you can make through videotape, which is very hard to impeach, as well as Trump's own words. Well, and we have not reports of one witness, but multiple witnesses in all of this. There is going to be something, and I'm not a fortune teller, but I will play one on television for this moment, that this witness that they're talking about in the Washington Post article initially said that no directions were given, that this person initially denied the fact that Trump may have directed the movement of these documents. That person has since changed their story and affirmed this new, you know, timeline, if you will, multiple times to department investigators. Is it meaningful that the witness changed his or her story? Beyond the credibility question, could it imply a pressure campaign on the part of Donald Trump, at least initially? It is meaningful in the sense that that witness will be cross-examined. They changed their story. The question is, is there corroboration of what the witness is saying now? And if you have the videotapes that we're talking about showing the boxes being moved to the former president's own personal residence, that is powerful evidence corroborating the story. And the fact that we know those documents included classified documents, it shows that the witnesses current testimony bears out what we already know independently. So yes, he'll be impeached, but the story doesn't rise or fall just on what he's saying. You have the other evidence that shows that what he is saying now is the truth. Barry, it also raises the question of why, right? Like he did these things, but we still don't know the answer as to why. And I I do think this kind of line of argument, or at least defense, that Trump was kind of 
an absent-minded hoarder. He just took stuff. Now we have this accounting that he directed specific boxes to be taken out of this closet storage and moved into his private residence. And do you think the Justice Department is asking itself or knows potentially why those documents in particular were the ones Trump wanted? Alex, how much time do you have? Remember, I, I served as counsel for the first impeachment, too. Yeah. And he and Donald Trump is what we call a recidivist. He repeats, commits crimes because he believes he is above the law. Mm-hmm. So whether he's obstructing a Russia investigation, preventing the peaceful transfer of power or keeping documents because he wants to. He doesn't think the law applies to him. And most federal crimes have at their base lies. And Donald Trump has been known to be a, a proponent of many falsehoods, including about the election. So I think You don't need to prove a motive. Motives are helpful for juries to understand the evidence and believe the inferences that are drawn from them. But in this case, you can see Donald Trump has said, they're my documents. Mm -hmm. I want them. I don't care that it hurts the national security. So the overall theme here is Donald Trump, once again, is putting his own personal interests over the interests of national security. And if these reports are true, that these go to sort of the most sensitive issues critical to the defense of our country, and he's keeping them because he wants to, that is enough to have a powerful case for a jury. I, and I, I understand that the case on its own merits is strong enough, but politically, a motive would potentially be, would ease Merrick Garland's path, would it not? Because if, as you see it, the DOJ has to move forward on these charges. I mean, is that what I'm understanding from, from your assessment here? I'd like to believe that no one is above the law. The evidence, if the reports are true as they appear to be, is as powerful a case that you'll ever see. And as a criminal defense lawyer, I have clients that are indicted on a fraction of this evidence. We're great ambiguity about the charges. So if the DOJ is going to bring those cases, this is the case they have to bring. And I would say about politics, the department is not supposed to be there to make political decisions. Sure. It's supposed to make decisions about justice. Right. And if the evidence is that powerful, including that he did it. Now, you say motive. The motive is he wanted to keep it. You know that because he repeatedly took steps to keep that, to not care that they are required to be turned over. And he has publicly stated the quiet part out loud, that they're mine and I wanted to keep them. And I didn't care if it could hurt the nation. Do you think that this precludes Garland charging Trump in January 6th. A lot of people, I mean, we had Franklin Four on the show last night. He's a reporter from The Atlantic, interviewed Merrick Garland. He also thought Mar-a-Lago was probably the case that Garland would indict on. Can he feasibly indict a former president? By the way, something that's never been done before in American history. Can he do that in two cases? It is inconceivable that he could do it, but it is just as inconceivable that a president would commit as many crimes as this former president did. And I will tell you, the powerful case to bring is the January 6th case. You don't need to charge him with seditious conspiracy, as many of these extremist groups have been charged with. You only need to charge him with interfering with an official proceeding, the certification of the vote. And the evidence of that is overwhelming. And I would argue to you, if the most important issue is deterrence, as we always are here, I talk about it, talk to you about it. Now you have people in less than a month who are trying to get elected to office on the platform that they are going to do exactly what Donald Trump did. They're going to interfere with an election. They still claim the election was stolen. And if Donald Trump violated the laws that appears that he did, making false statements, false electors, inciting a mob to attack Congress to prevent that certification, all part of a conspiracy to interfere with that proceeding. If the department doesn't bring that case All of these people who are running on the platform that they're going to do what Donald Trump did will feel that they're above the law. So while it is a lot to charge a former president with two crimes, if the evidence is overwhelming, my question is to you, isn't it inconceivable that they don't charge him? 
Right. Well, it's politically treacherous and at the same time inconceivable, right? Uh, what is the timeline for this? Given, you know, the realities of politics, the reality, I mean, the election calendar is what it is. I'm actually thinking of the 2024 presidential election. When would you expect, given where we are in the Mar-a-Lago case, that the Department of Justice would move on this if they are going to issue an indictment? There is a general non-binding principle the department doesn't bring cases within 60 days of an election that could be affected. So clearly nothing's happening in the next month. I think it is a question of the evidence. There's two years to the next election. But you don't want to interfere with the selection of a candidate and the like. And I think the department should make the case on the evidence. If they believe they have the evidence to bring and prove a case that the former president is guilty of these crimes, then they should bring it as soon after the next election as they're able to make that case. I'm not even going to ask you about the, do- the documents that the Department of Justice still believes that Trump may be holding on to somewhere at Bedminster or Trump Tower. We don't know. This has obviously been an uphill climb, shall we say, to get those important classified documents back. Barry Burke, who served as chief impeachment counsel to the House of Representatives for the January 6th impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump. Barry, thanks always for your time and wisdom. My pleasure, Alex. We are going to have even more on Trump's troubles this hour as a January 6th committee prepares for its final public hearing tomorrow. In June, we heard some explosive testimony from an aide to Trump's chief of staff who said that Trump knew that members of the crowd gathering on January 6th to hear him speak were armed. And tonight we have reporting that the January 6th committee has the receipts to corroborate that story. We'll talk to the reporter who broke that news just ahead. Stay right here. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. Tomorrow, the January 6th committee will hold a public hearing for the first time in months, and it may be their last hearing ever. And while some of the hearing is likely to be essentially the committee's closing arguments as to what they've learned about the attack on the Capitol and Donald Trump's role in it, we do also expect them to reveal some new evidence. In particular, we're expecting news about the actions of the Secret Service on January 6th. Today, the Washington Post reports that the hearing is expected to highlight newly obtained Secret Service records showing how President Donald Trump was repeatedly alerted to brewing violence that day, and he still sought to stoke the conflict, according to three people briefed on the records. You'll recall that during a previous select committee hearing, former White House staffer Cassidy Hutchinson testified she overheard that the president wanted to allow armed members of the crowd into the ellipse that Trump instructed the Secret Service to take away the magnetometers, the mags, they were using to screen people for dangerous weapons. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. 
let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Was he told again in that conversation that people couldn't come through the mags because they had weapons? Correct. And um, that people, and he, his response was to say they can march to the Capitol from, in, from the ellipse. Something to the effect of take the effing mags away. They're not here to hurt me. Let them in. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. Now, the Washington Post reports that the new video footage and internal Secret Service emails will corroborate that fairly explosive testimony. The Post also reveals, and this is key, other internal emails likely to be revealed at the hearing further buttress accounts about staff members warning Trump about the risk and then the reality of violence that day as he continued to press nervous Secret Service agents to take him to the Capitol to join his supporters marching there, the three people said. Those emails will reportedly show that Secret Service agents tried to frantically secure Trump a path to go to the Capitol with his supporters, only to be rebuffed by D.C. police. In other words, the president knew his supporters were armed. He wanted to let them keep those weapons, and he wanted to personally urge them to keep marching to the Capitol. That is not all we are expected to hear about tomorrow. The Post reports that some of the Secret Service emails obtained by the committee could throw a sharp spotlight on Tony Ornato, the Secret Service leader turned Trump political aide. According to testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson, Ornato relayed to Hutchinson an explosive account about Trump's attempt to press on towards the Capitol that day, though Ornato is rumored to dispute Hutchinson's account. So now, with the new correspondence that the committee has obtained, by tomorrow, we may all have conclusive evidence about what exactly Donald Trump was trying to do and with whom on January 6th. Joining us now is Jacqueline Alamany, congressional investigations reporter for The Washington Post and one of the reporters who broke this story. Jackie, thank you so much for being here tonight to talk us through this. Thanks for having me, Alex. So first off, can you tell us more about how the committee got its hands on these Secret Service the Secret Service correspondent. It sounds correspondence. It sounds like it's a lot of material. And up until this point, there is a real question about how cooperative the service was being with this investigation. Yeah, Alex, that is a really good place to start. And as my colleague Carol Lenning and I outlined in our piece, it was sort of an ironic twist of events. The committee really came to believe, especially the lawmakers on the committee investigating the January 6th attack, that the Secret Service ultimately was not being cooperative. Uh, this they, they came to this conclusion after they almost stumbled across some of the radio frequencies that they ultimately used in uh, the second to last hearing that showed an anonymous Secret Service agent raising serious alarms about the violence that he was uh, seeing uh, on the Capitol. After that moment, the committee then realized that they were still missing quite a few materials, uh, especially these text messages um, that have been uh, out of all of the communications most under the spotlight, although our reporting has also told us that uh, the committee ultimately was not able to obtain these deleted text messages from key players, people like Tony Ornato, during this time period. But at the end of the day, DHS finally uh, uh, started 
taking a more cooperative posture and delivered 1.5 million documents, Microsoft team chats, emails, text messages from Secret Service agents beyond what the committee had initially asked for. Asked for. So, so the committee really has had uh, a, a plethora of new communications and documents to piece through to create a, a better, more cohesive and detailed uh picture of what exactly happened in the lead up to January 6th on that day and in the aftermath. I still think it surprises a lot of people that the Secret, Sur- the Secret Service may not have been initially cooperative with what was one of the greatest security breaches in our nation's history. I wonder how much you think events of recent weeks, for example, the Oath Keepers trial, which is ongoing, the notion that Stuart Rhodes, the head of the Oath Keepers, may have had a direct line to a Secret Service agent in the run-up to January 6th. How much do you think the news of that, the evidence there, the mounting scrutiny over the choice to wipe all of these phones carried by Secret Service agents on the 5th and 6th of January, how much that external pressure ultimately led to the agency cooperating with the January 6th committee? Do you have a sense that that was going on internally, a sort of hand-wringing about what to do? Yeah, and and we also know that Secretary Mayorkas uh, was was pretty alarmed at the lack of cooperation. Uh, at the end of the day, though, Secret Service is sort of its own siloed entity uh, within the Department of Homeland Security, and uh, the former president has sort of gained this reputation for becoming extremely close and developing these kind of unusual, untraditional relationships with Secret Service agents. For example, Tony Ornato in particular was an agent uh, who worked for the Secret Service, who then went back to work, who then became uh, a Trump administration official and worked directly for the president in a political position. This was something that was uh, really unprecedented um, and I think raised a lot of questions and alarms about whether or not he was able to do his job of protecting the president while also serving in a political role uh, and and trying to appease the former president. Um, The same with Bobby Engel. A a lot of these relationships have been scrutinized uh, as these new details about the Secret Service's uh, actions on the day of January 6th. And I I think I wouldn't be surprised (laughs) if tomorrow we do see uh, some potential communications um, that go beyond Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel uh, of people in the service who might have been a bit more sympathetic to the insurrectionists than uh, we would like for uh, our people who, who serve in the federal government to 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 be. Uh, J- Jacqueline, where does where do things stand with Tony Ornato testifying behind closed doors with the committee? Because there's so much confusion about what exactly happened on January 6th between the Secret Service and Donald Trump. Yeah, right now, uh, where Tony Arnado stands is he is no longer a government employee. He actually resigned the day he was supposed to conduct an interview um, with the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General as part of an internal investigation into uh, his actions with regards to January 6th. Uh, and he also has yet to appear for another January 6th uh, interview with the Congressional Committee investigating the insurrection. That being said, he did initially appear for an interview earlier in the spring where uh, he couldn't recall a lot of answers to questions that other witnesses were able to recall. As one committee source uh, phrased it to me quite eloquent, eloquently, is that 
these guys referring to Tony Ornato and Bobby Angle, Trump's Secret Service detail, was that they were not being honest. Uh, and that what we're going to see tomorrow potentially is more holes being poked in the responses that they were giving to investigators in their closed door depositions, uh, new evidence, information, communication uh, that shows that they didn't uh, they they weren't being truthful about not being able to recall certain things uh, and that their relationships with people like Cassidy Hutchinson and and other witnesses who the committee has heard from were actually um, much closer and, and trusted um, than they have led on. I mean, to say nothing of the fate of Tony Ornato and Bobby Engel, it could be a real problem for the integrity of the Secret Service, if in fact that is what we learn tomorrow. Jackie Alemany, congressional investigations reporter for The Washington Post. Great to see you, Jackie. Thanks for making time tonight. Thanks, Alex. Up next, Judgment Day, as a jury orders conspiracy theorist Alex Jones to pay nearly a billion dollars to the families who have been harassed for nearly 10 years by Sandy Hook truthers who hung on Alex Jones' every word. The attorney who won that massive judgment joins us next. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Sandy Hook, it's got inside job written all over it. Sandy Hook is a synthetic, completely fake, with actors, in my view, manufactured. All I know is the official story of Sandy Hook has more holes in it than Swiss cheese. For a decade, the far-right conspiracy theorist slash media personality Alex Jones has been saying that the Sandy Hook massacre did not actually happen. 26 people died in that Connecticut school shooting in 2012. 20 of them were first graders. All of those victims had families. And those families, thanks to Jones's lies, not only lost a loved one, but have faced a decade of harassment and threats from Jones's followers. All while Alex Jones himself has profited. Today, a jury in Connecticut unanimously ordered that Alex Jones and his company pay $965 million in damages to the families of eight victims from that shooting. That comes on top of the $49 million Jones has already been ordered to pay in a similar case in Texas. Amazingly, Jones was live on his show when today's verdict came out. And despite hearing exactly how he's hurt these families, just a staggering amount of pain and anguish that's been described in detail, in detail, over the course of this trial. Despite that fact, and the fact that he now faces a billion dollars in damages, Alex Jones still believes this is all just one Big joke. The judge looks pleased. Probably 
$200 million? <laughs> I don't have any money, so it's all a big joke. $120 million. Yeah! Filled by Gerard. Woo! $55 million yeah! filled by Gerard. Yeah! $54 million. Yeah! Get those one. numbers up. Fifty-seven million six hundred thousand dollars. That's better. Initialed by juror number Get one. Get those numbers up. Seventy-three million six hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. We don't have a billion. I'm not happy. I want to be the billion-dollar man. They actually believe they're getting this money. It's like they believe all their own stuff. We're not scared, and we're not going away, and we're not going to stop. And literally, for hundreds of thousands of dollars, I can keep them in court for years. I can appeal this stuff. We can stand up against this travesty, against the billions of dollars they want. It's a joke. So please go to InfoWarsStore.com and get Vitamin Mineral Fusion, get X3, get all the great products that are there that keep us on air. No remorse. No regret, just straight to plugging the powders and supplements you can buy on his website. Now, Alex Jones is claiming he is nearly broke. He's saying he'll appeal this decision to keep it tied up in the courts while he fundraises and sells his junk supplements to his followers and attempts to make profits off of national tragedies. They want to scare everybody away from freedom and scare us away from questioning Uvalde and what really happened there or, or Parkland or any other event. And guess what? We're not scared and we're not going away and we're not going to stop. Joining us now is Chris Matei. Matei was the lead attorney for the Sandy Hook families who argued their case in court. I am pleased to say he joins me now. Chris, thanks for joining me. And congratulations on finding some measure of closure for these families who have been struggling with this for an unfathomable decade of their lives. Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate you. What of Alex Jones's contention that he can tie this up in court forevermore? Are, are the families going to see any of this money in reality? Well, you know, I saw your lead in there and I saw Alex Jones say he's not afraid, but we know exactly what he's feeling on the inside. He's terrified. Uh, and although he may see this verdict momentarily as just another opportunity to make some money, uh, he is going to face a bankruptcy judge. He is going to face litigation in Texas, and we're going to enforce this verdict no matter how long it takes. Uh, one of the things Alex Jones has tried to do throughout this litigation is conceal the extent to which he profited uh, from his lies about Sandy Hook. But his finances are going to come under uh, a whole new round of scrutiny in the bankruptcy court. And really, whatever assets he has, uh, and we think they're substantial, but whatever assets he has, uh, these families are going to chase him to ground and enforce every cent of this verdict against him. Um, they, these are compensatory damages. Is that right? There's still the families could still sue for punitive damages. Is it possible that this figure could go up? No, it's actually very likely. Um, so, yes, in Connecticut, the first round of this trial that was presented to a jury was for compensatory damages for defamation and emotional distress. There will be a second round just over the next month where the judge will decide uh, punitive damages under Connecticut's Unfair Trade Practices Act. We brought claims against him that his corrupt business practice uh, hurt these families and he profited from it. And she will uh, decide after having heard all the evidence in the trial, whether punitive damages are appropriate here on top of the verdict that the jury returned today. And those punitive damages have no cap. Uh, and so it is possible that within a month or more, Alex Jones will be facing even more than the nearly billion dollar verdict he faces today. 
What I think a lot of people want to hear that this will foreclose him from the ability to ever do what he did to the families of Sandy Hook. But you heard him in that clip we played talking about Uvalde and Parkland. I mean, how how much of a deterrent can this be in the long road for for, for Alex Jones specifically? Obviously, bankrupting the man is one method of, of trying to stop him. But really, how to end his reign of, of lies and to some degree terror that he's inflicted on the families who have lost the most precious thing you can lose. We thought one of the most compelling moments in the trial uh, was when we were able to present a screenshot of his website in which he was inviting his audience to fill out a survey in which they would predict whether the next false flag staged event would be a mass shooting. Uh, it showed in real time that the man is willing to inflict this type of uh, harassment and uh, fear campaign on the next families to go through uh, the tragedy that our families went through. And we thought that the jury would find that especially galling and something that required deterrence. What we know is that Alex Jones is motivated by profit. He's not motivated by truth or any of the stuff that he actually says. What he's trying to do is prey on his audience's fears in order to get them to buy products, as you just saw. And so what I think this verdict uh, represents is a whole new incentive structure for Alex Jones and people like him. He's not going to get rich off this any longer because these families are going to make him pay for the harm that he inflicted and hopefully put him in a position where he's not able to do it again. Um, so we think that this is a historic verdict and uh, we hope it will reset incentives for Alex Jones and people like him. I wonder, Chris, since you spent so much time seeing this man in, in the courtroom and there were so many emotional outbursts, I mean, his character was on such full display. Did you get a sense of what lies beneath the cruelty and the bluster? I mean, I think it, it is hard for a lot of us to imagine being as monstrous and as monstrously cruel as Alex Jones, to look at the victims, the families of victims of children who are in that courtroom and to say, I will inflict more pain and more cruelty on your life. I will I will make sure another kind of evil is visited upon you. I mean, did you get a sense of who this man actually is underneath all of this? Alex Jones is a broken, fearful little man on the inside, and he uh, is not happy unless other people are as afraid as he is. Uh, and, and that's what really, I think, underlies his cruelty. I mean, we showed that he and his employees were aware very, very early on of the impact that their lives were having on families who were grieving. And they didn't care because they were seeing their audience numbers and their profits go up and up and up. And they were willing to inflict this kind of cruelty and pain uh, no matter uh, because they were making money off of it. And because I think they saw that it was working within their audience. They were engaging people who were afraid, who were resentful, who were mistrustful. Uh, and that's who Alex Jones really is on the inside himself. Um, that said, the man does like his money. Uh, and so this type of lawsuit, I think, is going to have a real impact on him. And, you know, it's important to remember that this uh, verdict was returned against him personally and his company. Uh, and the verdict was for intentional misconduct, the type of uh, conduct that is not dischargeable in bankruptcy. So he's going to be on the hook for this uh, for a very, very long time. And we're going to make sure uh, that he feels it. 
Chris Matei, attorney for the Sandy Hook families in today's historically large settlement against Alex Jones. Thank you so much for your time and for your efforts trying to correct some very serious wrongs, Chris. Thanks for for your time tonight. Thank you very much. We have more to come tonight, including the Democrat who is hoping to flip a Republican Senate seat in North Carolina, the candidate in that race that suddenly everyone is watching. She joins us next. Every Senate race is the most important Senate race in the country right now, as Democrats try to hold on to their majority and Republicans try to win it back. And one of the Senate seats that Republicans have to hold on to in order to do just that is in North Carolina. Senator Richard Burr's long announced retirement leaves the state with an open seat. And with just 27 days until the midterms, that race has come down to Democratic candidate Sherry Beasley and sitting Republican Congressman Ted Budd. Despite a deeply polarized Congress, North Carolina's current senators, Richard Burr and his colleague Tom Tillis, have, from time to time, voted with Democrats on gun reform, infrastructure, and certifying the 2020 election. But Representative Ted Budd is not that kind of lawmaker. He is one of the most conservative members in the House, with a 98% lifetime score from Heritage Action and the Club for Growth. Congressman Budd voted against the bipartisan infrastructure law. He voted against same-sex marriage protections and against gun safety. Those are some of the bills that some of his Republican colleagues have supported. Instead, Ted Budd co-sponsored a bill that would ban abortions nationwide after 15 weeks of pregnancy, and he voted to overturn the results of the 2020 election on January 6th. At this point, the one person standing in Ted Budd's way, in his path to the Senate, is Sherry Beasley, who would be the first black woman to ever represent North Carolina in the upper chamber. Beasley is a former state district court judge. She's a former state court of appeals judge, and she served as chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. She is currently polling just one point behind Ted Budd. Joining us now is Sherry Beasley, North Carolina Democratic Senate candidate. Ms. Beasley, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, Alex. So, as I, I, I truly do believe every every Senate race is the most important Senate race in the country. But your race has in the last like closing week of this campaign become the thing that Democrats are quite focused on. We now that know that uh, Senator Schumer's PAC has funneled, I think it's four million dollars into your campaign in recent days. What has your correspondence been like with national Democrats as you seek to maybe help them hold on to the upper chamber? <laughs> You know, we've really been focused on our in-state people-powered campaign. Uh, We knew this was going to be a tough race. I've had tough fights before. I've never backed down, and I will not back down now. You know, I'm very thankful that I've had two successful contested statewide elections here in North Carolina, and we're doing uh, really well. There's a lot of energy and enthusiasm, and we've been traveling to all of our 100 counties across the state talking about the kinds of things that people care a whole lot about. Uh, They care about lowering costs and they're feeling everything from the pain at the pump to the cost of prescription drugs and everything in between. And we're excited about uh, the support that we're seeing here in the state. And we're certainly excited about uh, the support that we're seeing nationally as well. What do you think has been the sort of catalyst for this energy and enthusiasm on the ground? Um, North Carolina hasn't elected a Democrat to the Senate or voted for 
uh, I think, a Democratic president since the year 2008. Is it abortion? What is the what is if you had to focus on one or two issues that are really driving voters passions right now and that have given you the lift in the polls that we're seeing, what would you say it is? Well, I think it's a couple things. I think it is us being present. I mean, we're working hard in communities all over the state, and we're talking about the critical issues that people care a whole lot about. Uh, and, and they know that Congressman Bud has been in service for six years, and he votes against the interests of folks here in the state. And he's far more entwined with corporate special interests and his own interests. I mean, you mentioned at the top of the hour that he is aligned with the most extreme faction of his of his of his party. Uh, he is an election denier, and he called the mob on January the 6th that rioted and stormed the Capitol and injured hundreds of police officers, just patriots standing up. And so North Carolinians are concerned about that. I mean, even after all of the violence, he still voted to uh, not to certify the election. He is still uh, denying the election. And even when asked now if he will accept the results of this election, he he won't. He will not commit to fully saying that he will he will accept the results. And and he uh, supports an absolute ban on abortion. He's leading this charge without exceptions for rape, incest or risk to a mother's health. And we know from women who are sexually abused that they would otherwise be forced to carry the pregnancy to term. For women who have an ectopic pregnancy, just imagine the, 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 the joy of a mom who has an ectopic pregnancy and then has to make the critical life-saving decision for herself to have an abortion. And ectopic pregnancies and, 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 and um, septic uteruses and miscarriages that don't release. I mean, we know that the life-saving treatment for uh, these women is an abortion. And, and, and we know that for uh, nearly 50 years, women have had the constitutionally protected right to make this decision with their physicians free from government interference. And if elected to the Senate, I will always fight for our freedoms and I will fight hard to make sure that Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. I, I got to say, it is we all want to know what's happening in these Senate races from the people that are running them, because there's a national narrative about Democrats chances. There's a lot of trepidation about saying Democrats can actually hold on to these chambers. And you guys are on the front lines. What happens to Sherry Beasley will in many ways be a, uh, charting a course for what happens to the country. And let's say the alternative, Ted Budd, is... Um, well, that's an alternative universe, I think, for a lot of people. Sherry Beasley, North Carolina Democratic candidate, Senate candidate. Mrs. Beasley, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll be following the race closely. Thank you. And I hope your viewers, for more information, will go to SherryBeasley.com to hear more about my candidacy. Thanks for your time. Up next, why every vote counts, including members of a politician's own family. We will be right back. This is what you call a growing problem. In 2014, when Republican Adam Laxall ran successfully for Nevada Attorney General, seven of his relatives came out and endorsed his Democratic opponent. When Laxalt ran again for statewide office in 20, 2018, this time for governor, a dozen of his relatives came out against his bid. Adam Laxalt would go on to lose that race. Now in his race to unseat incumbent Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, today, 14 of Adam Laxalt's relatives came out in support of his opponent. A new poll out today shows Cortez Basto leading Laxalt by just two points, which is within the survey's margin of error. 
Another reminder that every vote counts, including blood relatives. That does it for us tonight. Tomorrow, our special coverage of the January 6th hearing starts at noon Eastern. Then tomorrow night at 8, we have our special recap of the hearing. I will be here along with Rachel, Joy, Nicole, Chris, Lawrence, Ari, and Stephanie. The gang will be all here. That is tomorrow night at 8 p.m. 